from 11FS. This is Fintech Insider News, and I'm your host, Ross Gallagher. Thank you for downloading this podcast, especially you setting off on that run right now. You're doing great. This week, we're talking PSD3 proposals put forward. Lots of optimism from our panel on this one, but also some pitfalls to avoid. Wise announces bumper profits. We've got their VP of growth with us to talk about it firsthand. And fraud for dummies, or rather dummies for fraud. Stay tuned for that one. It's a weird one. We get into all this and much more on today's show. So let's get to it. But first, a few brief messages. We'll be back with you shortly. 11FS has been voted Consultancy of the Year at the British Bank Awards for a fourth time. We are super excited about bringing home the trophy, and it means more knowing that it is our clients that are the ones who voted for us. Digital financial services may only be 1% finished, but we're working with banks, fintechs, and everybody in between to chip away at the 99% still to go. And moments like this really tell us that we're on the right track. If you want to work with an award-winning team to build game-changing propositions, then let's chat. 11FS Ventures is home to industry experts across embedded finance, customer experience, digital strategy, bank building, and so much more. Kickstart your next project today and visit 11FS.com forward slash ventures. That's 11FS.com forward slash ventures. Welcome to episode 755 of Fintech Insider. I'm Ross Gallagher, Ventures Lead at 11FS. I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by some great guests to break down this week's biggest stories in fintech and financial services. Firstly is my 11FS colleague, Benjamin Ensor, Director of Research and Strategy here at 11FS. Hey, Benjamin, um, any projects on the horizon that have you excited? Yeah, we've got um, some work coming in on financial well-being, which is one of my favorite topics because... To me, I think one of the big, one of the few big unsolved consumer financial services problems is helping people manage their money better. They, you know, there's all sorts of products and tools and so on, but very few firms have really tracked how do you get better advice and guidance to people to really make a difference to their lives. So really, really interesting project, and I'm kind of hoping to somehow push myself onto the team that's doing that work. Excellent. Yeah, Benjamin, anyone that knows you knows that that's uh, a topic dear to your heart. So uh, yeah, awesome. All right, excellent. So up next, we have a welcome return to FinTech Insider for Sarah Kashansky, independent FinTech consultant. Sarah, welcome back to the show. Great as always to have you. I don't imagine too many will need much reminding, but maybe you can just, uh, what should our, list, our newer listeners know about you? Sure. Well, um, thank you for having me back. It always amazes me that you keep inviting me back. Obviously, say something interesting occasionally. Um, so I'm a I'm a freelancer. Um, I'm, as you say, independent fintech consultant. Essentially, what I do is I work with a range of clients, helping them better understand the fintech market. Um, I do that globally and I help them understand what it means for them. So what products they should be building, what companies they should be investing in, you know, what their competitors are doing, a, a full range of things. And as I mentioned previously in the, the pre-show chat, um, for my sins, I work 11fs for three years so um i have history shall we say with the podcast and the company yeah no definitely that's probably understanding um, <laughs> lovely to have you on 
Um, and finally, we have a return to FinTech Insider for Nil Empiris, the Chief Product Officer at WISE. Um, Nil, thank you so much for joining us. Um, maybe you can just give our listeners uh, a bit of a, re- a re-intro to you and, and your role at WISE. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, I'm Nilan, uh, Chief Product Officer at WISE. I've, uh, I've been at WISE for a decade, so a pretty long time, more or less since the beginning uh, when it was just uh, Christo and Tarvat and uh, just worked with them over the last 10 years, building the product, marketing, sales, um, design analytics teams, um, and still having too much fun. So uh, yeah, still pretty committed to the mission there and excited to have the conversation with you guys today. Awesome. Yeah. And look, I know you guys have announced, uh, released some pretty impressive figures. So thanks for uh, joining us as well to, to reflect on those. So I guess with that, let's, uh, let's jump in. Let's get into the news. Now, this first story comes from AltFi. Uh, the headline is PSD3, the European Union unveils new open banking rules. So open banking has been given a potential new set of rules after the European Commission today released its proposals to update the rules governing payments. The revised Payment Services Directive proposal, replacing PSD2 with PSD3, comes alongside the new financial data access proposed rules, as well as separate Payment Services Regulation, or PSR. The new package of measures will have far-reaching consequences for banks and fintechs, It includes measures aimed at increasing the baseline adoption, functionality, and performance of open banking APIs, but is also much more ambitious in scope than existing regulation. Now, for some wider industry reaction, here's Jan van Vono, head of industry and wallets at Tink, with his verdict on the news. So PUC2 was a milestone in payments regulations, recognized all over the world. In creating a single market for electronic payments, and embracing more competition for financial services, it was a major step forward for the EU. However, progress has arguably not been as quick as many had hoped. So the renewed drive that PUC3 and PSR provides is a welcomed addition to the development of open banking in Europe. We are encouraged by many aspects of the new proposals on open banking such as the benefits in giving authorities the required tools to better evaluate the dedicated interfaces or APIs provided by banks and other financial institutions. And to this end, we hope that the PSR in particular will resolve much of the controversy surrounding API quality that is present in the relevant regulatory technical standards under PSD2 today. Yeah, so some real optimism there, I guess, surrounding these uh these new proposals there from Jan. Um, Benjamin, it'd be great maybe to come to you first on this one. I guess having having read the proposals, what stands out? What sort of catches your eye? I think the first thing to say is that the press release is a lot easier to read than the underlying proposals. There's a lot of jargon in the underlying proposals. I thought a PI was a uh, was a private investigator, <laughs> not, <laughs> not a payment institution. But I think what really strikes me is just you know the sheer scope of this. There's a lot in here, right? There's a whole bunch of measures to try and combat increasing payment fraud. There's measures to uh, try and level the playing field, particularly for non-bank payment service providers, giving them sort of equal access which comes with you know probably higher regulatory scrutiny for them at the same time there's a lot of measures to try and improve the functioning of open banking um you know to to the point that uh, Jan just made about API standards and so on there's a lot of effort going into sort of increasing the enforcement powers 
you know, it's certainly the case that there are, you know, banks in Europe that have not been bending over backwards to try and implement open banking. So trying to get more of a level playing field, continuing to increase the rights of consumers uh, for access to data. And actually, I think probably the biggest, one of the biggest ones to me is actually the the, the associated so-called FIDA or financial data access. I'm not sure how you abbreviate FDA to FIDA, but anyway, financial data access. Because what that does is actually widens it beyond just payments and banking data into open finance. So there's a lot here. If this all comes through, this is a huge change to the landscape across the European Union. And we know it'll probably influence regulation in in many other markets around the world too. Yeah. And so Benjamin, I guess, look, zooming out a little bit and sort of thinking about how this is going to play out for end users, consumers, maybe you can just give us a little bit, you know, why, why is this relevant? Why do people need to pay attention? Why should people care? Well, it's a bit like someone coming along and changing, you know, changing the rules for a game of football or rugby and saying, okay, the pitch is going to be this size. You can have this many players on the pitch. You know, these types of things are allowed. You know, we're changing the offside rule, etc. It's changing the fundamental underlying rules of how payments companies and other companies interact with consumers' data, interact with you know, who owns that data, how that data can be used. So it has a, it's going to have a huge impact on the competitive landscape. It creates a lot of opportunities. And I think the, the primary thrust of, the, of, of it, like so much European regulation, is to try and, try and create a level playing field and try to prevent any individual player having sort of monopoly power that in some way is damaging or harmful to customers, whether that's retail or, or business customers. Yeah, and look, there are, I mean some obvious criticisms some i think we've probably touched on and i think uh, i think jan in his um in his segment as well touched on but i think look i mean y- you couldn't say that psd2 hasn't changed the game right to stick with your analogy um it's had a huge impact both in the uk and then as you rightly say you know the sort of impact it's had on other markets do you think that um psd3 is likely to have the same impact i think if it if, if they follow through with the sort of financial data access and create open finance, so suddenly I can see all of my investments at a whole bunch of different firms, I can see all of my insurance, that's actually much wider reaching. They're saying they probably exclude health data because, you know, there's potential bad outcomes, you know, if somebody or, you know, if organizations can see individuals' health data, that potentially is, could be harmful. But if it truly goes as far as open finance, then this is, this is massive. Sorry, I'm, I'm using too many superlatives here, but it's a big deal. <laughs> no, I like I like massive. I like big deal. That's uh, that's what we're aiming for. Sarah, look, keen to bring you in, and I suppose uh, get your reaction. What was what, what were your thoughts when? Uh, well, I guess just when you saw this announcement, but but PSD three then in general. I thought, oh God, I'm going to have to read it. And each of these is about 70 pages long. And I'm still not over having to read PSD2 when that came in, you know, nearly 10 years ago. Um, No, I mean, you know, flippancy aside, um, regulations need to move with innovation. And so regulation always needs to be updated. I, and I think, you know, the the premise of what they're trying to do is great. Um, I haven't looked into all the details because I haven't had the energy yet to read (laughs) both documents cover to cover. Um, I mean, what they're trying to do is great. They've taken on board the feedback. They're trying to overcome some of the hurdles that, you know, and obstacles that have been clear in, um, you know, achieving the goals of PSD2. Um, You know, there's a couple of things. One, I don't think is in any way controversial. We got this publication, you know, recently. Um, It's going to take at least five years before anything happens. One of the problems with European-wide regulation is the EU publishes it. Then each government has to spend, you know, up to two years. They get two years 
sort of uh, to do so to, to write into their national uh, regulation and rules and then after that companies get another two years to implement it so you know we, we could be looking at sort of the end of the decade before before we see this actually in practice and that leads me on to my second point which is possibly slightly more controversial in that um, a lot of the places where we've seen some of the most um, interesting advancements in open finance have been sans regulation they've been places where they've let the market lead or in places where regulation has led, you know, talk about Brazil or Australia, then it's one country with one regulator and one set of banks. The problem with EU regulation is, 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 you know, as I alluded to earlier, just trying to get it done across the board. And that means it takes time, it means nuance gets lost, um, and it often means it isn't as effective as perhaps it could be, you know, as, as it perhaps would be in a, in a country where it was just one regulator or two regulators working together and a set of banks. So my, my worry is that whilst the, uh, um, you know, the ambition is great um, and I admire it, this is going to take a really long time to do anything and we might not see the uh, desired outcomes. And maybe actually we should be looking at a situation where to improve open finance and, and the state of open finance in Europe, we let the market take more more control. Um, again, that may prove controversial, but that's my perspective from from sitting on the outside. And, and one of the roles I do is I, I work as a leader of an open finance community for an organisation called Chorus. So I spend a lot of time talking to people about this and there's more and more sentiment that perhaps we should let the market take a greater lead and let the regulators sit there, make the regulators take a backseat. Such an interesting point, Sarah. So I want to kind of stick with you a little bit just on that one. I guess regulation and the fact that like the CMA9, for example, was sort of mandated to adopt PSD2 and all of that sort of stuff at the beginning was a a huge driver, I suppose, in the early success that we saw around open banking in the UK. And then I suppose laterally, as the UK's maybe fallen behind, some of the frustrations have been aimed at regulation at the OBIE, whatever that is. I guess, how much of that do you think, in the context of what you were saying, is sort of justified? Or how much actually should, like you said, I think it's such an interesting point, should people in the market actually just be taking the initiative and driving these things forward? I mean, it's very hard to 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 sort of quantify it. Um, it's interesting. I was at an event uh, a couple of weeks ago in Milan talking about open finance, and we were sort of asking some of our participants, all of whom were banks or, or large financial institutions, and we said, "So, what do you want from the regulators?" And one guy put it very succinctly. He said, "Do it properly, or stop and get out of the way." Um, he was like, "You know, we need." clear standards that everybody abides by. We need one standard that everybody abides by. Um, the problem with with sort of EU regulation certainly is that that isn't what happens, as I said, because you have, you know, however many different countries that are doing it their own way. Um, so I think... I think it's going to be, it's, what's going to be interesting is what the UK does, right? So we don't necessarily have to do this. I'm based in the UK. We don't necessarily have to do what's in this document. Do we generally continue to do what the EU does? Yes, because it makes it easier for financial services. But it may, I wonder, you know, what the what the next few years will hold in terms of how the UK diverges and whether we do decide to let the market take a greater a greater role in, in deciding what happens next. Obviously, that way, it's much harder for you to get a level playing field. Obviously, that way, it's much harder for you to make sure that, you know, the quality of the APIs the banks are producing is you know, good enough for the third parties to actually use them. 
There's another interesting point in the it's sort of a, a little point that's included in the regulation, which a lot of people have jumped on, which is that um, banks might be allowed to charge for access to the APIs they create from this point forward. Well, banks have already been allowed to do that. And some have done, you know, Poland, there's some big players, Spain, there's some big players that have paid for APIs that people do take. And because they're paid for, they're a higher quality because, you know, there's a, there's a, a two-way deal or, you know, everybody gets something out of it. So, you know, again, that that's a particular nuance or a piece of clause within the, the regulation. I think actually probably isn't as bad as people think it is, because at the moment, the point that a lot of people have been making is the banks have no incentive to do this. Why would they? Um, why would they give somebody else what they consider one of their greatest assets? And the regulation hasn't made them do it thus far. Is there any chance they'll do it in the next five years? Possibly. Do financial regulators have other things to focus on rather than enforcing API standards? Probably. So, you know, whilst the enforcement um, intention is there, I don't know how much it will actually happen in reality. Yeah, again, a super interesting point. And I think for the market to actually want to take the initiative and drive this forward, the model has to be right. The incentives have to be there. Completely agree. Nilan, what was your uh, your sort of reaction to this? And I suppose, do you think the proposals go far enough to address, I suppose, some of the, uh, the underlying issues around PSD2? It's interesting hearing um, Sarah's perspective on whether regulation actually helps or not so having spent like many many years campaigning for regulatory change kind of like think and some of which made it through in psd2 and some in to psd3 kind of think it will help but then in practice uh, sometimes it doesn't make much of a difference so i'll talk you through a, a couple of examples so for us the the three things that mattered that came out in psd3 were transparency in cross-border pricing uh, something we we pushed for in PSD two, and in PSD three they've gone further, but not enough. I'll come back to that in a sec. Direct access uh, to underlying um, central bank payment systems for non banks and improvement in open banking. So if we start off with transparency, in PSD two, taking a step back, something like seventy percent of consumers out there don't know there is a, a fee hidden in the exchange rate. When you when you go to send money abroad now, all of all of us on uh, listening to the fintech insider podcast probably know that uh, you kind of uh, the rate is usually marked up. But when you go to a major bank, could be Barclays, HSBC, Citibank, and you see that rate, you don't think there's a fee in there, but there is. And because of this hidden fee, we've uh, campaigned for years to for banks to show their mid market rate and then show the spread on the rate so that a consumer can understand and compare without having to do a bunch of arithmetic and checking on Google or Reuters um, the rate. Um, PSD2 brought in the concept of a ECB rate, a reference rate that banks needed to reference. The UK transposed that into law, into UK law as well post, uh, post-Brexit. However, if you uh, if you I'm not going to name names, but if you go to any any major bank in the UK and you look at the rate, uh, you'll see that it's not particularly clear what the markup is still. And we've we've started like um, blogging and rating uh, banks' implementations of of PSD two, and have active conversations with with regulators in Europe and in uh, in the UK around enforcing this. So. That's a really good example of, as you said, Sarah, getting the regulation in, but nothing really changing. And it still takes a lot of groundwork to do that. And maybe we can get there through consumer advocacy rather than through regulatory change. On to direct access. So 
Wise famously, I think about seven years ago, we got access to FPS and we have we have bank accounts at the Bank of England. And we got that before PSD3 <laughs> as a non-bank. And we have central bank access in um, Hungary, um, in Europe, via Bank of Lithuania, in Singapore. And we've got access through an intermediary in Brazil. And each of these accesses uh, involved some form of regulatory change. We worked with the government to create the regulatory sandbox in the UK. In Singapore, we lobbied with the gov- with MAS to to open up access. Um, and it's great to see the mandate come through in PSD3. And maybe in a decade later, some things will drip feed through. Um, so again, it's another good example of where the regulation is probably lagging. Um, it's definitely a need because as long as uh, tier one banks are the only ones with access to the payment systems, then there's always a, a middleman taking a cut on the fees. And it prevents, I think in the UK, as as we open up access to FPS, so a bunch of fintechs, well, well beyond wise, we've seen so much innovation uh, in fintechs in the UK. And I think that's, yeah, there's clear linkage there. And that's enabled us to kind of leapfrog a little bit, uh, as well as driving down costs for end consumers. Um, FPS is faster payment services, just, sorry. For, just for listeners. Sorry, <laughs> yeah, going straight into jargon. Um, yeah. And then finally on open banking, concur with everything you've said in the sense that banks have opened it up, very limited quality. So our customers use open banking a lot, actually. Uh, they use it to fund their transfers or fund their account. Uh, we we use this uh, this new innovation called, uh, it's very technical, called VRPs. <laughs> uh, but basically, Variable recurring payments. Thank you very much, Ben. <laughs> so basically, once you connect your bank account and authorize it once, you can just uh, push a button to to fund your payments in the future. But again, the quality of those integrations varies bank to bank. And we have to kind of, we kind of got algorithms figuring out, okay, we actually don't recommend you use open banking in this case. And we find it, you find it with your debit card or a bank transfer instead. So I concur with Sarah's points. The regulation's kind of good for kind of setting a direction, but there's a lot of hard grunt work on the ground to actually drive the yeah. change. I, yeah, and you know what? I think what you've done so nicely there, Nilin, is kind of bring that to life a little bit, and 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 I suppose give us a view as to like what some of these proposals mean in practice, and I suppose the potential impact that they can have. I honestly think we could have done this entire show just on this story, <laughs> and I think we will keep coming back to it. But for the moment, I am going to move us on to our next story. Um, this one comes from the Independent, with a headline: "Wise sees profits soar amid customer boost and rising interest rates." So money transfer firm Wise has unveiled soaring annual profits thanks to surging active customers as high interest rates boosted its income. Shares in the group jumped after it reported a 234% rise in pre-tax profits to £146.5 million for the year to March 31st, up from £43.9 million the previous year. It notched up a 34% jump in active customers to 10 million after attracting 4.5 million new customers and saw them move £105 billion across borders internationally, which was up 37% year on year. The group said a 73% rise in income was boosted by higher interest rates as central banks worldwide pushed the button on increases to try and curb sky-high inflation. So, Nilan, great to have you on here for this one. Obviously, we sort of teed this up in the intro. Maybe you can just um, give us, I suppose, your reaction and, and sort of maybe expand a little bit on that um, 
final point, I suppose, about the impact of the the sort of global economic forces and uh, and those rising interest rates. Yeah, thanks for bringing me in. Um, so Wise was founded to solve the problems with cross-border payments. They're slow, they're expensive, and they're hard to do. And we solve it with three products. Our money transfer product, and this is what consumers know and love and small businesses, and um, they've been using this for Wise historically. We've launched a Wise account. This is 10 billion pounds in assets, which kind of puts us up there with like, you know, the top two or three neobanks globally. And we think of this as the world's best international account, striving the growth today. And then we have an enterprise product called Wise Platform. We have uh, 60 banks uh, live on Wise at the moment, offering Wise to their own customers and hundreds, uh, over 100 integrating at the moment as well. So let's go back to the numbers. What's What's been driving our growth? So number one, in terms of uh, global reach, we've managed to continue to take Wise to more markets, mainly through investing in uh, getting access to the local underlying infrastructure. Because the thing that matters to consumers and businesses moving money is they want it cheap and they want it fast. And as we invest and integrate more locally and into more local payment methods, uh, every quarter we manage to try to drive down the costs or improve the speeds of the payments. We hit 55% instant transfers. As a consequence of that, we get this incredible viral evangelical customer growth. So um, out of the million customers that we onboarded last quarter, about 70% of them heard about Wise from a friend. So this is really what's been continued to drive our growth. Uh, so still tiny in the grand scheme of things. So we've got I think 2% of all the world's money moves through Wise, so long, 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 long way to go. <laughs> um, and as long as we keep dropping the prices down, making the payments faster, making it easier to use, uh, then, then, then these numbers will keep going up as we keep increasing the volumes and dropping the prices. So it's really unusual that we have these, these profits. Let's <laughs> talk these through a little. So generally, we kind of try to earn a, a fixed amount on every transaction uh, that goes through our system. And we need that margin generally to cover our uh, capital requirements and um, yeah, another another cost that we need to we need to hold money for over time. But what's driven uh, the excess profits is the uh, money that customers are holding in accounts in Wise. So going back two years, um, customers holding money in Wise was a problem for us. So when we had negative interest rates in Europe, it actually cost us money to hold hold uh, customers' money for them under our EMI licenses. And uh, yeah, we had to recover that cost. And now as interest rates have increased, we've been working really hard to give that money back to customers. Under our EMI license, it's quite hard to do that. So we've had to get a brokerage license and we've built a a product uh, called Wise Interest, uh, which enables customers to kind of switch their balance into government bonds. And then as they spend, it dynamically sells your bonds and gives you something like a 4% 4% interest in the UK. And so as, as customers switch to this, then our profits go down <laughs> uh, so that as we can give more of the interest back to customers directly. But that's what's driven the overall profit rate. And it's quite interesting when we talk to the market that I think uh, most most companies would be celebrating the, the excess profit, but really people feel pretty down about it because they kind of we kind of see it as a failure of not being able to to give back returns to customers as much as we we would like no it's 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 an interesting take and 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 obviously i sort of i sort of get where you're coming from but i suppose there's also some um 
some other sort of staggering numbers, right, around the, the sort of growth of new customers and active rates and all of that sort of stuff. I mean, Benjamin, these are uh, quite staggering figures, aren't they? They're very, very impressive figures. Yeah, indeed. I guess, do you think, like, is wise, like, I mean, you know, w- when you look at it on the face of it, it's incredible performance. Like, do is wise recognized enough as a sort of big UK fintech success story is a little bit underrated? What do you think? I don't think it is recognized Enough, sorry, Nilan. I mean, uh, I think there is a tendency in fintech to focus on the digital banks, right? So, you know, particularly if you look at the UK, you know, everyone focuses on sort of Starling and Monzo and Revolut and Atom, and they're great, you know, and they've changed the industry. But they are far from the only ones changing the industry. There's, you know, there are dozens of brilliant businesses changing the industry in the UK, in Europe, and across the world. So, you know, is, is, why is an underrated UK fintech? I'd say it's an underrated European fintech uh, and arguably an underrated global fintech. Um, so yeah, I think you know, huge credit to, to, to you and your team because you've found, you know, you've focused on a really big customer pain, a really, you know, a, a job to be done that customers have had for, for centuries of how do I convert my money? You know, how do I convert my pounds into livre or whatever? You know, people have been struggling with this for years years and years. And you've made it much, much easier. You've made it cheaper, faster and better. And I loved what you were saying about actually the hard work you've had to do of building infrastructure in each country and working with regulators to get direct access to the underlying banking systems, because only by doing that can you actually make it cheaper, faster and better. So yeah, Ross, I love it because it's based on a ton of hard work in the plumbing of the financial system. I completely, I completely agree. Um, and as I say, I mean, I just think the numbers are so impressive. Sarah, I guess when you read this one, what what sort of stood out for you? Um, hi, happy wise customer here. Oh. Great. Very, <laughs> very, very, uh, very impressed. Very pleased. I have a feature request. Maybe, you know, I can tell oh, yeah, you please. now. Yeah. Love, to, love to hear um, it. Yeah, so I get paid in three different currencies by three different clients. Um, and that means that when I come to file my tax return at the end of the year, I need to tell HMRC what the exchange rate to GBP was on the date that that payment hit my account. Can you find a way to automate that for me, please? Just, you know, to make my life easier going forward. One button tax reporting. We've got it. (laughs) Yeah, please. Even just the conversion would help. You don't have to deal with HMRC. I'll do that. Um, uh, Oh, yeah. And I also really enjoy my fee rebates. That's great as well. So thank you very much. Hi. So you did notice. Yeah, I noticed £35 coming back into my account in January. Why? I I can share a little. I mean, this is uh, one of the ways we had to try to get inventive on giving giving money back to customers. Uh, (laughs) And some of the, and it's interesting on whether customers noticed this or not. That's great. And did you, why why do you think it happened, the fee rebate? Just as a... Like, because we're nice people or because you, <laughs> you do so much with us? Or I, what, I assume it's just because I, I tr- do so much business with you. Uh, okay. No, I mean, my assumption was, and correct me if I'm wrong, maybe I should know better, that it was because of the interest you were earning on my deposits that you were finding a way to to return those yeah. fees. Um, I mean, I can't comment on but... that because I, I'm not allowed to comment on why we were able to do that. <laughs> but it's interesting you inferred that. That's cool. Yeah, or or it, or it could be to do with, you know what, I don't keep as close an eye on conversion rates as I should as per my opening comment mm. on this story. So there could be there could be other reasons for it. And now 
going to go away and find okay, out the cool. answer. Um, sorry, Ross, what was your question? Do you know what? I, it, it almost doesn't matter because I love that that turned into like an impromptu user testing sort of interview. I was, was um, going to say, if we've got other product managers from other fintechs listening to the podcast who want to come on to do, you know, impromptu customer interviews, you know, we're up for it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm more than willing. I'm more than willing to come back. You know, my interview technique is pretty sound. So um, but sorry, it does, Ross. No, I was going to say, when we talk about those sorts of... Um, new features and how they're landing with users, it does pique my interest. So Nilana, come back, I'll give you the final word on this one. What sort of what sort of next on the, the product roadmap? What are you guys thinking about? Yeah, so the account we've really seen a uh, significant take up on. So most of our businesses now, they effectively bank with WISE, uh, SMBs with WISE, and we continue to roll out like expense cards for them, uh, integrate into their, into their uh, workflow and their payment systems. Um, and then enterprise really is what's going to be driving our growth. It probably will take about three or four years before it really kicks in. Uh, today we have uh, Google Pay uh, on WISE. Uh, we have Zero. You can pay all your bills with one click with WISE. Payroll platforms like Deal and Gusto use WISE, um, and as well as like the newer banks like Monzo and N26. But it's the the major banks. This is where it gets really interesting. So we have I think three majors: BPC in France. Uh, Shinhan in South Korea, Mandiri, the largest bank in Indonesia. So if you think about it, why would a why would a major bank uh, integrate Wise? <laughs> and uh, I, I do a bit of the sales conversations with banks, and because they earn obviously so much margin from from uh, or it's not so much margin. Uh, originally, I thought it was because they earn so much margin <laughs> from exchange rates. What I've learned is because it's so expensive for them to service cross border payments. And what they've seen with the fintechs coming in is 10, 20, 30% of their volume has switched away from the banks to fintechs, either via new banks or uh, other fintech poor play providers. And those ones that have switched are the cust- their most valuable customers. Mm-hmm. So they're increasingly left with the lower value customers that are harder to service. So we're, not, we're nowhere near at a tipping point yet where major banks are going to start to integrate fintechs for various parts of their stack, including cross-border, but it's it's coming over time because last year was 20%, this year it'll be 30%, next year 40% of the volumes will switch. And it's not just cross-border, it'll be other other industries as well. So this you know unbundling of banks, which talked about for a long, long time, I think it'll eventually happen, but it's the, we got the timescales a bit, a bit wrong on this. Super interesting. Makes sense. Look, I mean, some really interesting initiatives that you guys are sort of looking up, off into the future you know, incredible numbers, as we've said. So, I mean, congratulations, and Nilan, thanks again for coming on to uh, discuss it with us. All right, so from there, we're just going to take a quick pause, and we'll be back with you very shortly. Hello, and welcome, LFG people, to Fintech Insider. Blockchain Insider. 11FS Spotlight. 11FS Explores. Open mic night. After dark. Through our podcasts, videos, newsletters, and live events, we have a direct line to a truly global fintech community. So if you're looking to sponsor and collaborate on content that connects with everybody from fintech beginners to the biggest VCs, then chat to our team at sponsors at 11fs.com or visit 11fs.com to find out more. Long live the community. Welcome back. Before we get on to the second half of today's news, a reminder to check out the latest episode of our FinTech Insider Insight Show. In our most recent episode, we're asking, how do we get to the holy grail of cross-border payments? Cheap, universal, speedy, and secure, 
Is that too much to ask for when moving money internationally? David Breer is joined by guests from City and JP Morgan to delve into this one. You can find that podcast wherever you got this one. All right, let's get back into the news now. This one comes from TechCrunch. The headline is Robinhood acquires credit startup X1 for $95 million. So trading platform Robinhood is acquiring a no-fee credit card startup for $95 million in cash. X1 offers an income-based credit card with rewards and has raised a total of $62 million in VC funding since its 2020 inception. The card's proprietary technology also lets cardholders cancel subscription payments in one click and free trials automatically with auto-expiring virtual credit cards, get instant notifications on refunds, attach receipts to purchases, and create virtual cards for one-time purchases. The deal is part of Robinhood's efforts to move beyond its initial stock trading focus and complements its existing debit card offering. So, Sarah, keen to come to you first on this one. What was your... uh, what was your reaction? What stood out? Yeah, so there's, there's a couple of things. I mean, you know, the first one, whenever you see something like this, is why didn't they just build it? You know, Robinhood's done a lot of building in-house. Um, if you dig into what X1 actually has live in market, there's not a lot there that's particularly innovative. You know, a lot of other people are doing credit based on, um, you, know, you know, alternative credit scoring methods as opposed to just taking the traditional credit scores, you know, kind of doing the using. Re- one interesting thing, I suppose, is you using rewards to buy stocks and shares, which ties into Robinhood's business model. But again, that's not that's not difficult to do. And in fact, arguably, it might have been easier for Robinhood to do it itself. So I think the first question is why why buy rather than build? It could have been a customer acquisition play, but um, I did quite a, quite a lot. I did some Googling earlier and I can't find anywhere any kind of, you know, suggestion of how many customers X1 has. As, you know, Alex Johnson, amazing fintech analyst, pointed out in his newsletter this week as well. A lot of them are probably overlapping customers anyway. So that could work. That that could be an advantage and a disadvantage to this acquisition. You're not getting any new customers, but you're tying in existing customers with theoretically more loyalty because they're getting more of their financial services products from you. In terms of a complementary product to kind of the other stuff they've already been doing on the checking account side, the savings piece, again, it makes sense to be a holistic financial services provider. Would I be wanting to get into credit right now, particularly consumer credit right now? Uh, probably not. <laughs> but then um, I'm a, you know, an analyst and a researcher at heart, and um, there's, a, there's a lot of risk, I think, associated with this. The third thing I think that's been talked about a lot, particularly on social media, is did Robinhood overpay for this or did they get a great deal? And I think that's a really interesting debate that speaks to the broader kind of fintech investment slash valuation conversation that's ongoing. We all know there's a reset happening. Most of us agree a reset needed to happen. The question is, you know, when are we going to when are we going to get kind of another status quo again? The um, the price is theoretically, you know, if if this was two years ago, whatever, this would be a steal uh, for Robinhood, you know, buying it for whatever it was, 95 million, buying a company that had only raised, that had raised 60 million for that. But again, if you take in those points that I've already made, you know, we don't know how many customers it has. It doesn't have anything that's particularly innovative. We all know that mergers and acquisitions are tough, even when you've both got similar startup cultures. Um, Funny enough, I just wrote a piece on merger and acquisition culture clash for the banker. So a small plug there. But yeah, I think it's it's an interesting decision from Robin Hood. And I guess the, the question that maybe answers a lot of it is when did this conversation start? And what has not been made public? Because to me, it's not an 
it's it makes sort of makes sense, but it's not an obvious decision for Robin Hood, particularly at a time where they are cutting staff um, and you know seeking that all elusive profit. Why why spend on this? But again, as Alex Johnson points out, maybe it just looks really, really good in your next briefing to your investors to say you're growing and you're launching new products. But yeah, I think there's I think there's something else going on in the background that we're not quite sure about what it is yet. And, um, uh, you know, hopefully that will come to light soon, which, you know, helps make this make a lot more sense. Um, or maybe it won't, because sometimes these things don't. <laughs> sometimes these things just don't make sense. That's so true. And actually, your point is really interesting about the price. We seem to be having that conversation much more frequently now about like, oh, did they overpay? Did they underpay? Is it a good deal? And look, that's probably a good thing, right? After years and years and years of these these enormous um, valuations that nobody ever really questioned. Your point as well, I think, about the why did they do this is super interesting. You've broken out quite a few different um scenarios maybe benjamin i'm i'm part of what i'm questioning is like how much of this is a diversification away from obviously their core proposition around sort of like retail day trading as that sort of that space is kind of cooled i think that's exactly what this is you know successful businesses look for other things that they can offer their customers they look for other problems their customers have Obviously, Americans don't have problems getting a credit card. You can you know, hardly walk along the street in America without being offered a credit card. But Robinhood's got, what, 23 million customers. A lot of them are prime credit card type customers, uh, you know, very attractive set of customers. There's a there's a, an obvious commercial logic to it. I've been criti- always been quite critical of Robinhood in the past because I think Robinhood creates a fantastic customer experience. But the way it makes money, uh, the payment for order flow, is noxious because it's hidden from customers and customers don't understand how they make money. So I'm very happy to see Robinhood diversify into sort of slightly more open revenue sources, though actually, again, you know, credit cards do kind of have hidden fees, right? They're interchange fees, which are very high in the States, again, hidden from cu- for customers. Um, but I think this makes a lot of sense for Robinhood. I think Sarah's right. Did they, you know, have they paid too much? Um, they haven't paid a huge amount. It's not a fortune. So I think it's I think it's quite a smart move. I haven't looked at Robinhood's financials, so I don't know how much cash they've got to burn. But I think it's I think it's a logical move. Yeah. What do you, Nilan? What do you think? I haven't really got much to add. Um, it just it's interesting watching the pure play stock trading apps slowly become things that look like financial super apps or neobanks. Everyone's on the same agenda and the same journey. And I had a. And the interesting one is, uh, as you said, build, buy, or plug in an API and use someone else's product. Um, You can kind of see this shaking out in various uh, forms. Um, My own personal philosophy is this, like, trying to build a customer base with one product and then cross-selling different things in. Uh, Unless unless you've built something really innovative there, you just, it's just like, selling ads to your customer base, right? So it's kind of, you're kind of on a slippery slope. Uh, But hard to comment without any more info on on this uh, one here. But uh, I'll push back slightly because Robinhood does have a fantastic user experience, right? So if you love the user experience and there's something else in there, you're like, well, actually, I love using this for my stock trading, so why not? It only takes 10% of your customers to say, why not? And suddenly you've got a decent revenue stream. Yeah, I I worry when they, when that, contradicts the core proposition because you suddenly got these two things, uh, two things that make money. Like when it's as pure as we're going to build a great stock trading app experience and through doing that, we're going to grow revenue and suddenly we got to sell ads, right? Yeah, yeah, or we got to yeah. sell cross-sell credit cards to our customer base. You, 
the user experience will suffer and consumers will see that unless there's something unique the way we I think about this is there's something unique about the data that Robinhood's built up that enables them to offer a uniquely uh, competitive credit card product then totally makes sense but I, I may be missing that here I also wonder how many of Robinhood's customers need a credit card you know if 86% of gen you know Gen Z have a credit card at least one already and over 50% have more than one what are the benefits going to be of this that makes you think, yeah, I'll have a third one or I'll switch to it? And I, I can't see anything in the benefits that I've, I've you know, looked up that you can't get anywhere else, uh, except maybe that using points to pay for, you know, investing the points, as it were. I think we need an American on this yeah. podcast. Four, four <laughs> British people discussing why <laughs> Americans have multiple credit cards. But I think, I think Sarah, your point's a really nice one. And actually, the, the points to purchase... Stocks could be a neat way, of course, to tie it back to like the core of the proposition, and it could help all of this make a lot more sense. It feels like we're going to have to let this one run a little bit before we can accurately get a sense of whether or not it makes sense. So in the meantime, I'm going to move us on to our next story, uh, which comes from UK Tech News with a headline, UK fintech Treasury Spring raises $29 million to scale its cash investment platform. So London-based Treasury Spring, an investment platform for enterprises to diversify their assets, has secured £23 million in funding. Founded in 2017, Treasury Spring is aimed at firms that have secured funds and are looking to put excess cash towards investment opportunities. The company describes its service as a secure and flexible platform that reduces the risk of traditional investing. Kevin Cook, co-founder and CEO of Treasury Spring, commented... For too long, the importance of cash has been overlooked by many operating businesses and investors alike. To find out more about what Treasury Spring see as their USP, we reached out to Kevin Cook for more information. You asked me to send you a quick voice note on our Treasury Spring USP, which is pretty simple. We are the only institutional platform offering clients access to the broadest range of the best risk-adjusted cash investment options. What does that mean? means that through one single digital onboarding that can typically be completed much more quickly than even opening a single business bank account, our clients gain access to over 500 different cash investment options across seven different currencies. Effectively, they unlock the same breadth and quality of cash investments that you might have if you were sat in an investment bank treasury department, but delivered through a simple, intuitive UI without the need for any financial infrastructure, any complex legal agreements, any time-consuming tech integrations, or any painful operational processes. Our products are organized across three verticals. You've got government and government-like options, which prove very popular in risk-averse environments like the one we find ourselves in today. Then you have banks, where we only offer exposure to the largest, most highly rated institutions, including all 10 of the safest banks in the world, according to Global Finance's most recent annual survey. And finally, and slightly more nascently, clients can access investment-grade corporations thanks to the partnership that we've built with the London Stock Exchange. By offering all of these options through a single platform, We make it easy for our clients to diversify, to reduce risk, and to maximize returns on their excess cash balances. Excellent. I mean, an awesome overview of the the offering, the proposition there. Benjamin, maybe I'll I'll come to you first on this one. What were your thoughts? If they were doing that funding round at the time that Silicon Valley Bank collapsed, that was absolutely perfect timing because (laughs) Silicon Valley Bank didn't half emphasize to you know, obviously, in, 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 particularly startup businesses, you know, the importance of diversifying that that any 
any bank can potentially uh, run into trouble. So, yeah, I think I think this is a, a very sensible proposition. There are other businesses that do something like this, but aimed at slightly different markets. So you think of, in the UK, you think of businesses like sort of Flagstone Investment Management or Raisin across Europe that are kind of doing this for, for consumers or uh, wealthy individuals and so on. But this is for, you know, large corporations. And it's a you know, it is tough. A lot of corporations really struggle managing cash across multiple accounts. It's can, it can be quite difficult. You know, you've got lots of different feeds logging into lots of different bank portals and so on. So there's a, there's a clear pain here. Um, there's a good opportunity. So I, I think this is really interesting. It's a relatively small amount of funding they've raised. I mean, obviously, $29 million is a huge amount of money to an individual. But in fintech terms, it's not a huge, huge sum. But I think it's a really interesting business. So fantastic. Good luck to them. I completely agree. Sarah, I think that point that Benjamin mentioned about diversification, it's certainly sort of on trend at the moment, isn't it, with what happened to SVB? Oh, yeah, very much so. And, and one of the things that I didn't understand when SVB happened was as somebody who's had, you know, from whatever age drummed into their head that you're only protected up to 85k in a bank account, why businesses didn't understand and big businesses as well, you know, even VCs, you know, had far, far too much um, held in, in one place. I think the um, types of diversification options we've seen come out have been interesting. So, you know, the big kind of like uh, SME focused or startup focused near banks in the US have, have made use of the, the US's system of allowing you to um, spread kind of the risk across multiple banks on the back end. So, you, you know, Brex, for example, came out very, very quickly with an offering that allowed you to put a lot more than uh, the 250K that the FDIC um, insures at one institution, you know, but you could put a lot more in and still have it insured by spreading that out across, uh, you know, numerous institutions, uh, numerous banks, as it were, which is a, a long used system, a long, the infrastructure has been there for a long time, rather, but nobody just seems to have used it. This, I think, is obviously a different proposition. What's interesting to me is how easy to use is this? Because if I'm running a small business, I mean, I run my own business, essentially, I work for myself, I do not have a lot of time for admin. How much time do I have to sit down, even though it's all through one platform and decide what my risk tolerance is, where I should be putting my funds across the three options that they offer, you know, which makes most sense for me as a business. Um, again, I don't know the business well, there may be a guidance element to it when you when you log on as a new customer. But I think if it's going to too complicated, or if it's too stressful as a founder or a CFO, or, or you know, whoever it is, the person making these decisions, it's not going to be as successful as perhaps you might think. Because when you're trying to run a business, that isn't brain space you have, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. Which is how we got into this mess in the first place. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, Nilan, that Sarah's point about sort of ease of use, if they really do want to bring smaller businesses into this type of cash management and sort of give them the tools, I suppose, that bigger enterprises have with their sort of treasury management systems and all that sort of stuff, easy use is going to be key, right, isn't it? There's definitely a, an opportunity here um, as so we we had this problem of having these uh, having cash balances, and we wanted a we have to invest them and try and figure out how to return the cash to customers, or b we now let customers invest uh, their cash balances directly in in government bonds, and we got access to a government bond ETF, and it's interesting that as a consumer retailer you can't get access to the best government bond ETFs at the really low fractional prices you can get at, at wise kind of scale. Um, and so this kind of arbitrage of being able to aggregate together um, cash management propositions and then op 
and again, it was a, a lot of work for us to go work directly with, with fund managers to do this and work through the onboarding and compliance. If this was available via an API or via a UI uh, for a uh, like even a small neobank to be able to manage their cash more easier uh, or through to a small business, um, that there's definitely an opportunity here. And I, um, I'm sure you guys all saw as as interest rates started going up, everyone started looking around for what what gives the best. There was like was on numerous forums where SMBs were asking, what's the best way of getting a higher higher return in the UK, uh, the fastest way of doing that across Europe uh, or in the US. And things like this really open up the options for for small businesses that have a have a real opportunity to put their cash to work. So yeah, I think real opportunity here. I completely agree. I think that the opportunity is huge. Um, and I, Sarah, I come back to your point again. I think easy use is going to be absolutely key to see uh, how much how much they actually sort of capitalize on it. All right. Well, look now for the section of the show called Big Click Energy, a quick fire roundup of some more click worthy news this week. Um, Benjamin, what have you got for us this week? So we have a story about integrated surveillance demand increases. This comes from Asset Servicing Times, which is a publication that some of you may not be that familiar with, but our producer Matthew is a big fan of. And it's all about uh, things like securities lending and assets. So according to a new report from SteelEye, integrated surveillance is now a key investment area for over a quarter of financial firms, up to 26% compared with 13% in 2022. Integrated surveillance is the ability to combine, monitor, and analyze structured and unstructured data across trades, orders, communications, and contextual sources such as news and market data. Doing so can uncover risks that otherwise go unnoticed when trade and communication surveillance systems are siloed. This has been uncovered as part of SteelEye's 2023 Annual Compliance Health Check Report. So to find out a bit more about the key findings of the new report, we reached out to Matt Smith, a CEO at SteelEye, for more. What we've seen, so we conduct this uh, survey on an annualized basis, and what we've seen in terms of big shifts from 22 to 23 was the increased demand for integrated holistic surveillance. This is surveillance that's covering both trades and transactional activity. And the driving factor of this is partially around regulatory Objectives. So the regulators, as an example, the SEC subjected the financial markets in the U.S. to 6.4 billion in fines. Two billion of that was for communications alone, and the need to be able to cover both trading and modern communications activities is becoming increasingly critical. In 2022, our findings from our research report showed that 13% of the market participants saw. Uh, integrated holistic surveillance as a priority, where in 2023, this increased to 26%. That's almost 100% net increase in focus from financial markets as a top investment theme. And, and today, technology has allowed us to, to be able to truly bring together transactional and communications activities in a single uh, surveillance platform. And this is a, a big shift in market demand, but also capabilities from market solutions providers. So I think this is really interesting. Spotting fraud, spotting risks is incredibly difficult. And anything that helps you pull together multiple sources and helps you see patterns or see connections that you would otherwise miss makes a lot of sense. So I think this is really, really interesting. I think there's a huge opportunity to make smarter use of data and AI and so on to try and spot risks that have been missed, spot any 
outliers. You know, it's even things like you know when um, when employees are forced to take a one or two week break at many investment banks so that uh, traders can't hide their positions. Um, so yeah, I think this is really really interesting. So good luck to them. Yeah, no, completely agree. All right, the next one comes from Altfi with a headline: Checkout.com launches AI powered optimization engine to increase merchant revenue. So checkout.com is launching, quote, Intelligent Acceptance, a product to help merchants optimize their acceptance rates and grow their revenue. The AI-powered optimization engine has been trained on, quote, billions of transactional data points from checkout.com's global network. It has reportedly already enabled transactions creating around $750 million of new revenue. According to Checkout.com research, in collaboration with Oxford Economics, $50.7 billion was lost last year in false declines when a customer who has sufficient funds in their account has a purchase incorrectly declined. They also found 25% of customers abandoned a purchase because of too much friction. Now, we asked you, the listener, on the 11FS LinkedIn page whether the current wave of AI announcements is a game changer in financial services or just a buzzword used by marketing people, we had more than 200 votes. 30% of you said, yes, it's a game changer. 17% said it's a buzzword and 54% sat on the fence and said it's a bit of both. Um, I think this is a really great feature and one that retailers have been sort of crying out for really for a very long time. I think false declines and friction at the point of sale will inevitably have a material impact on sales, revenues, profits, so I think retailers will be really pleased to see features like this. Um, I think interesting as well, just in terms of the results of our poll, I think it suggests that there is still a lot of skepticism around AI. But actually, I think features like this, where you can see the impact it can have in practice, I think they might start to uh, to challenge that a little bit. So yeah, I think great work from checkout.com and one that we'll, we'll certainly keep an eye on. All right, let's bring everybody back for the final section, looking at a more offbeat story from the last week. Um, this one comes from Finextra. The headline is, Cops arrest man for taping photos to a dummy to trick mobile banking facial recognition. So Brazilian police have arrested a man accused of taping photos to people's faces onto dummies to trick mobile banking facial recognition technology and then take out loans. According to Brazilian news outlet Metropolis, the suspect, I'm sure that's not how you pronounce that. I can only apologize to any Brazilians listening. The suspect was arrested and a large pile of photos of fraud victims who were targeted were confiscated. The suspect is alleged to have attached a large cutout of victims' photos to a dummy before using the face ID option to access mobile banking accounts and then apply for loans. Authorities have not revealed how much money the scammer was able to take out in loans. I mean, it's kind of stuff that you hear about but never actually think happens. Obviously incredibly basic. Nilao, let's let's come to you first on this one. What was your reaction? It made me laugh. Uh, it's quite funny, the um, arms race with uh, for online verification. So... Um, it's taking a step back. I, I remember when we when we went to Singapore, uh, which wasn't that long ago, say six years, and we asked for a license. And they said, here's a license, but you need to physically meet every single customer face-to-face. And this wasn't six years ago. It's not that long ago, right? And uh, UK, US, uh, Australia, you could do online. 
but after it took two years of lobbying and then we got online verification but then it's you know you start off with just a picture of your id and then you go to id with liveness so trying to check is this a real id or not and then i'm sure you've been through now the verifications where you have to show the id from its side and from its front and etc uh just to show that nothing like this is is happening so it made me giggle but i i kind of also see at the front line just how like you put in place the next gate, the next check, and then the fraudsters figure out how to game it, and then you're on to the next one, on to the next one. And obviously with AI, this thing is just moving so fast. Yeah, I guess the thing here is that, you know, a liveness test is not new, yeah. but you're right, AI can start, you know, what's really scary is if somebody can create an AI version of a face that can talk, yeah, because then that starts fooling all sorts of systems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, we're we're a long way from from that with this story, though, right? Like, I know this was a dummy. <laughs> but th- this guy is this sound by the sounds of it. This was one person. I'm assuming it was a guy. I think you said it was a guy. You know, this is one person operating on their own. When you get organised crime, that's when it starts to get frightening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm just impressed. To be honest, <laughs> I'm impressed at the dedication. You know, you hear of, to Benjamin's point, sophisticated rings of crime, rings of criminals who fleece, you know, millions and millions of, of pounds or euros or dollars or whatever it is out of people. I I don't know. I think let him keep the money, to be honest with you. The amount of effort that must have taken, go for it. Also, it's not just it's not just um, getting the picture and taping the picture on the dummy, right? I mean, they will have had to have sourced through various other sort of nefarious acts, all of the relevant personal information of all of these people that have been targeted. I mean, obviously I understand why the headline focused on the the sort of low-tech piece because it is it is headline grabbing. And um, but there's I expect as well in the back end, you know, quite sophisticated information gathering. I mean to be clear, by the way, I'm just I'm not condoning criminal activity. No, but of course not. Yeah, there's there is there is a lot <laughs> there is a lot of effort involved here. Um I think that's the, that's the key point that whilst it's an amusing headline, it's not something that's going to happen on a regular basis. No, completely agree. All right, I'm going to end us there. Um, so that wraps up this week's new show. Thank you so much as ever uh, to today's great guests. Um, let's go around the virtual room or the physical room in the case of the studio. Um, where can people find out a little bit more about you? Benjamin, let's start with you. Uh, so I'm Benjamin Ensor on LinkedIn and you can find out more about what the team are up to at 11fs.com. Excellent. Sarah, how about you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter or LinkedIn at Sarah Kachansky. Excellent. And Nilan, how about you? Hey, I'm Nilan P uh, on Twitter. Excellent. And as for me, uh, you can find me at Ross Gallagher 7 on Twitter. Um, as always, thank you for listening. Uh, please do join the conversation on social media or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Thank you very much and goodbye. Goodbye.